I speak to you to this day in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, like much of America, my wife and I have been swept up by the delightful and sometimes irreverent show known as Ted Lasso. And if you've not seen this show, it mopped up 11 Emmy Awards this year in 2021. And it's about an American football coach who is hired to lead a British football or soccer club despite having no experience whatsoever in the sport. But what he lacks for in knowledge, he makes up for with optimism and underdog determination and biscuits. This show delights in part because of Ted's irresistibly likable personality. and He just dispenses throughout the show with brilliant quotes, like a Pez dispenser, they come again and again. Quotes such as, your body is like day-old rice. If it ain't warmed up properly, something real bad could happen. Or, I feel like we fell out of the lucky tree and hit every branch on the way down, ended up in a pool of cash and Sour Patch Kids. Or, my favorite, boy, I love meeting people's moms. It's like reading an instruction manual as to why they're nuts. To be clear, I have no personal experience with that one, but it's funny. So besides being funny, the show is also profound. It touches on issues of mental health, relational tension and difficulty, and so much more. There's one beautiful moment that comes when Ted is confronted with a dartboard game with Rupert. Some of you might remember that character if you've seen the show, who frankly is a jerk and is also the ex-husband of Ted's beloved boss, Rebecca, who is the owner of the football club. So Rupert, Rebecca's ex-husband, is pompous, he's rich, he's mean-spirited, and he nearly beats Ted at darts. But Ted, surrounded by his players and pub friends who are sure that he has lost, quotes Walt Whitman, be curious, not judgmental. Rupert's cockiness caused him to assume that he could beat Ted, but lacking the curious spirit of a learner, little does he know that Ted played darts with his dad every Sunday afternoon growing up. And then Ted proceeds to exact dartboard justice by crushing Rupert, hitting a bullseye while looking directly into the eyes of Rupert and saying, barbecue sauce as the entire English pub explodes in joy and laughter at Rupert Rupert being put in his place. We love it. We love it when someone shows up who can exact justice, don't we? Why then do we so quickly bristle against the idea of God exacting justice, of God being a judge, of God setting things right? Perhaps it has something to do with our perception of judges, rooted as they are in cultural examples where justice often falls short or is incomplete or doesn't truly heal social or personal ills. We've just experienced the final week of the liturgical year this past year 
this past week, rather, and this is the week where we remember Christ as King. Bishop Brewer preached about this this past Sunday. We remember Philippians 2, for instance. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We follow the church calendar, which you probably know. It's otherwise known as the liturgical year, and it ends at Christ the King because this is the shape of the scriptural narrative. After Israel, after the cross and resurrection, after Pentecost, the ascension, and the development of the church, you see Christ seated on the throne, ruling and reigning. But there is one crucial component of his reigning that we must not overlook if we are to be faithful to Scripture, and we're faced with it once again as we shift today into a new liturgical year, as we move into the season of Advent. We are faced with the image of Jesus as judge. We don't tend to think of Jesus as a judge, certainly not in the lead up to Christmas. We think of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, but the church sings during the season of Advent, lo, he comes with clouds descending, perhaps my favorite Advent hymn, which puts forth the following verse, every eye shall now behold him, robed in dreadful majesty, those who set at naught and sold him, pierced and nailed him to the tree, deeply wailing, deeply wailing, deeply wailing, shall the true Messiah see. This is quite foreboding, actually, and not the image that we tend to share with our children or grandchildren. Our kids will not sing this at this year's pageant. And indeed, our scriptures reaffirm this image of Jesus, as we see in our gospel today, which states there will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and on the earth distress among nations, confused by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world, but the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. This is the image of Jesus as judge, which again, we tend to bristle against. I think it's because when we hear this word judge, we're likely importing images from our experience, culturally or otherwise, that aren't biblical. We hear judgment and we think of Sylvester Stallone in the movie Judge Dredd, or we think of an overlord who's dispassionate, uninvolved, cold or hard-nosed. But if Christ is to be king, he also must judge between all those acts, both right and wrong, that humans have committed. This is what kings do. We expect this of earthly kings and rulers, don't we, to make judgments? We should also expect this of God. Certainly the biblical text does. And God himself promises to set all creation in order, to welcome his prodigal world home after a long and messy trip abroad. So as we move into Advent, we'll see this theme of Christ as judge pop up again and again and again. As the Episcopal priest and writer Fleming Rutledge has observed, if you look at the readings for each Sunday that leads up to Christmas, the Sunday passages for Advent do not start with Jesus as a baby. They start with Jesus as a judge to remind us that it is not the main point 
that a baby will become a judge, but that God, the righteous judge and king, has strangely, miraculously, and lovingly become a baby. By the time we reach Christmas, therefore, we have Christ as an infant, but only on the far side of having seen him as a judge, robed in dreadful majesty. And if there's one thing I'd like you to hear this morning, it's that this is actually very good news. This is good news, but why? We all know that our world is broken. I think this is just empirically true. If we look around, we see it. And when something is broken on the local level, we insist that a system of justice fixes it, even if our systems of justice are imperfect. Or if our child breaks an arm, we know there is someone to whom we can go, the doctor, who will judge a right and ascertain how to heal the brokenness. So the question is, is there a cosmic doctor, as it were, A great physician who can judge aright the maladies and brokenness of the world, its sin, and set the break back into place. Is there a being, a God, big enough to fix and judge aright? Well, Scripture envisions a God who is perfect, whose justice is swift and complete. This is a God who enters into the deep wailing of the world and judges faithfully. And again, this is good news. Because God's justice will be in alignment with everything else we know about him. God's judgment will spring forth from his love, his compassion, his mercy. There is no more loving and compassionate and merciful being in existence. And so the hands of this judge are the hands that we can trust to ultimately do the right thing, to put all things in their proper place. Because these are the same hands that would take on flesh in a womb, that would embrace a mother, that would reach out to care for a despised harlot, that would heal the ear of an enemy. These are the very hands that were nailed to the cross so that we might be free. The grapes of wrath, which are pressed out by the judge, is his blood pressed out through the wine press of the cross, wherein we drink to the dregs his love. This love will heal all of our wounds. It will comfort all of our maladies. This wine is the elixir of immortality, and it will give us the life that really is life, the life we have longed for all along. Some years ago, I watched a news story of a treatment for people who struggled with Parkinson's disease. The researchers and the doctors would walk in a large dance room with patients, and the video would show the struggle of their bodies to make simple movements, steps, and actions they had completed perfectly and subconsciously for years. But then the tango music would kick in. The body would loosen up, The patients would dance with a newfound freedom, freedom they could never have before the music began. Apparently what's happening with Parkinson's patients is that there's a lack of dopamine in the brain, which allows the movements to be 
to be performed large and fast. Without dopamine, the gait of their walk will freeze and their feet will stick to the floor. When the music starts, it bypasses the part of the brain that allows the body to compensate for the defective rhythm inside the brain. And people who feel trapped to control the movements of their body will begin to dance with joy and newfound freedom. God's judgment is like this music. If we have eyes to see and ears to hear it, it's like a love song sung over creation. Like a child's broken arm, the notes of this song must name the brokenness to treat it, but it does not stop there. God's judgment is ultimately what allows us to dance again as our dance partner has bypassed our guilt on his march from cradle to cross. And the cries of this child, even the cries of this child from the cross, set us free to walk and to dance with the joy he longs for us to have. May we know that joy this Advent season, the joy found in Jesus our judge.